Hello, and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. I'm Charlie Pickles, Managing Editor. Today, we're talking about the growing disillusionment with capitalism and the role that the tax system may be playing in this. Last year, YouGov polling for Unheard found that two-thirds of Brits believe the poor get poorer and the rich get richer in capitalist economies. And perhaps even more damning, less than a quarter are optimistic that the next generation will be richer. In fact, YouGov polling has previously shown that more people have a favourable view of socialism than capitalism. It's easy to dismiss this with a glib comment about how capitalism is the greatest poverty fighter. And that is indeed true if you look at countries like China, where millions of people have been pulled out of extreme poverty since it started adopting a more capitalist economic model. But in advanced Western economies, it's a very different picture. Wages are stagnating, an increasing share of income is going to capital at the expense of labour, so workers, and wealth inequality is widening. There are lots of reasons that these things are happening, but could the tax system itself be one of them? I am delighted to be joined by Paul Johnson, director of the hugely respected Institute for Fiscal Studies. And while tax may not sound like the most riveting of subjects for us today, I can assure you that Paul will definitely change your mind. So uh, no pressure there, Paul. Welcome. Thank you. Um, So I thought we'd start with the lower end of the income scale. So Britain has for a while now had a disproportionate uh, number or portion rather of people who are in low pay, low skilled work compared to many um, European countries. So clearly that is contributing to the problem around low incomes. But we also frequently hear about stagnating wages and particularly since the financial crash. Can you just give us a bit of a context for what has happened to wages in the last decade? And, you know, we know that George Osborne introduced the uh, slightly disingenuously named national living wage because it doesn't actually give a living wage to people, but it's very clever politics there. Um, we know that's boosted lower wages, but has that made up for the loss since the crash? Well, for those people who are on the national uh, living wage, what was the minimum wage, then they've actually done in terms of their earnings much better than any other uh, group uh, because the, that national living wage really is quite a lot more generous than the minimum wage that it replaced. Now, one of the reasons they've done better than other groups is that people who are just above that level, indeed all the way up the distribution, have done very badly uh, since 2008. Actually, people have been doing pretty badly since before that. I mean, wages were rising very slowly in the four or five years before the crash. So we're not just looking at a decade, we're looking at more like 15 years of very, very slowly increasing earnings. And actually, average earnings today are still, if anything, a little bit below where they were a decade ago, which is absolutely extraordinary. And as Mark Carney at the Bank of England would say, it's probably the worst decade in 150, maybe even 200 years for earnings. We've really not seen anything like this pretty much ever before. And for those who are on low wages, albeit they've had a slightly bigger boost, a slightly bigger rise than other people have had, um, they're still very low. And on top of that, we are adding the increase in insecure work. So we hear a lot about zero hours or or low hours contracts. But actually, the thing which I want us to have um, a bit of a chat around is this rise in self-employment and within that, the sort of gig economy, the kind of platform um, economy working. And I mean, first of all, it, it is important to to 
not exaggerate this. So, you know, we've not got millions and millions and millions and millions of people in this situation, but we have seen a very rapid growth in self-employment and it's gone from, I think, around just over 3 million in 2001 to just under 5 million um, now. So, you know, that that has been quite a, a pacey change. And the tax system is actually playing quite a big role in this. And I wanted, Paul, you to explain for us how, the, in particular, the national insurance system for employers works and why the way it's structured may be incentivising businesses to hire people not as employees with the full rights of employees like sick pay and holiday pay and all that kind of stuff, um, but actually as contractors or self-employed workers. Yeah, this is a really important trend. And the, uh, as you say, the numbers of people who are self-employed or in this so-called gig economy has been rising really quite fast. They're still uh, a minor, you know, just definite, relatively small minority, but the numbers have been rising quite fast for all sorts of reasons associated with technology and associated with other social uh, changes. But one of the things that clearly encourages employers to want to contract with people as self-employed um, is that if they do that, then the self-employed worker has a lot less in the way of employment rights. But more possibly more importantly for the employer, they don't have to pay employer national insurance contribution. So my employer pays me a salary and it then pays to the tax man something like 12% of that salary in national insurance uh, contributions. Money I never see, that's the employer uh, bit of it. Um, if uh, instead I were to set myself up as an independent contractor or as a, a, a small company uh, and was to contract with the Institute for Fiscal Studies, they wouldn't have to spend any money uh, on uh, on national insurance contributions in employing me. And actually, I'd pay a bit less tax as well. So there's a big incentive in the tax system, which is driving people, particularly driving employers, towards this very different form of employment relationship. And bringing that back to this idea of our loss of faith, or what seems to be a loss of faith in in the idea that capitalism can deliver prosperity for all rather than just a sort of wealthy subset. Um, this is all part of what we would call the social contract. So, you know, yes, we pay taxes, we pay into the system, but actually we get something back. And, and it's the same for employers that, you know, we work for an employer, um, we hopefully work hard, um, but actually what we get is certain protections and certain investments back in us. And, and this tax system is potentially undermining that model in people's eyes? Well, I think the employment relationship is changing and it's been changing over a long period. It's not unrelated actually to the collapse essentially of trade unionism in the private sector so that the power that workers have in that employment relationship has, has, has fallen. And if you are if you are employed, nevertheless, you've got the power that comes with the legal protections, and some of those are reasonably significant. But if you're not uh, employed, then you don't have any of those legal protections. Now, for, for many people, that's a that's a perfectly reasonable choice. So if you you might decide to be a, you know, the the usual example, a self employed plumber, and you understand exactly what's happening there, or you might be a high earning partner in an accountancy firm. You're formally self employed there, and you understand exactly what's going on. But actually, quite a lot of people, um, there's some evidence. First, they don't actually entirely clear what their status is, or secondly, that they feel they have little choice other than to uh, do something which looks a bit like a job, uh, but which um, uh, doesn't give them the 
protections they expect. I think it is important to be clear there is a role. There's clearly a role uh, for people to be in this kind of self-employed uh, situation. What is not clear is that there's any role for the tax system to encourage uh, employers uh, or indeed employees to, to move in that direction. Why you would want to favour that form of, uh, of work, or to put it another way, why employees should have to pay more um, is really unclear. And so if we accept then that the tax system is distorting behaviour, um, what might we do about this? I mean, is the answer to scrap the idea of uh, employer national insurance and to come up with some other type of employer tax, say, based on the revenue that that firm earns or the profit they make? I mean, how, how do we move forward so that the, the tax take is still there. In fact, it's boosted, but it's applied in a much more neutral, much fairer way, regardless of what the employment status for those companies is. Well, the, I mean, the obvious thing to do would be when, for, for, you know, for when an employer contracts with an individual or a, or a firm to provide some labour services, then they pay a certain fraction of the cost of that to the tax man, just as they do if they contract with me um, to employ me. Now, an alternative might be to uh, levy a much higher rate of national insurance contributions on the earnings of self-employed people or of company um, owner-managers. Uh, that probably has a similar effect in the long run, but might be much more difficult to do in the short run because it would look like, um, or in fact, it probably would be the case that they would be getting significantly worse off in the short run. So finding a way of equalising, essentially equalising the tax treatment of employer employees and the self-employed is actually really important, both from a social justice um, point of view, but also actually to protect, to protect the tax base. I mean, the Office of Budget Responsibility has issued a number of warnings about the amount of money that the Chancellor is just losing each year as more and more people, for whatever reason, are moving into uh, what is at least officially self-employment and why we should be losing billions and billions for that reason is really, again, there is no good reason for doing that. And again, the less tax you take, the poorer or the fewer the public services are that you can uh, pay for and deliver. And often that will hit the most vulnerable, the poorest in society because they can't access the public services they need. And therefore, again, we see this undermining of the idea of the economic model that we have. Or the higher the taxes on other people. So you have a, you have an, you have a, you have a, either have an inequity in the sense that some people are paying a lot of tax because other people aren't, or, as you say, you have less uh, good public services and that, that because lower-income people tend to be more dependent on that, that clearly has a negative distributional effect. Before we go on to those high earners um, and whether or not we have any sympathy for their tax situation, um, I did just want to very briefly touch on another part of um, the sort of tax system uh, which relates to low earners, which is um, tax credits. And it's got tax in the name, although um, whilst in America, for example, the tax credits are a sort of negative income tax, a kind of rebate that you might get at the end of the year if your earnings are lower than a assertion threshold. In Britain, it's, it's very much a benefit. And we spend about 30 billion, I think it is, um, a year. How far is that model of subsidising low wages also contributing to what we might call less desirable behaviour um, among businesses who quite frankly probably could afford to pay higher wages? Well, I mean, this is this this is a so, so what we have is a, a tax credit system will become the universal uh, credit system, which is designed to give people some incentive to go into work, so that the uh, the amount of uh, benefit you get at the moment jumps up as you uh, work sixteen or twenty four 
um, hours a week. And the idea is that that gives you a clear incentive to move into work. Now, the way that works is that you get uh, you get you get a benefit payment which takes your income. Um, up, and this is particularly valuable to families with children who are on, on low earnings. The worry um, is that employers, knowing this, will offer lower wages. Now, how important that kind of behaviour is, I think, is a bit unclear. There isn't terribly strong evidence that there's loads of employers out there who are deliberately paying lower hourly wages. But there is quite a lot of evidence that um, they're offering very specific numbers of hours a week, whether that be 16 or 24, because they know that that's the point at which people maximise their um, their earnings plus benefits. And if they knew that people are moving on to those particular number of hours, they've probably got a pretty good sense that they're the ones who are uh, who are receiving the benefits. This may be, we don't know, this is maybe uh, related to what's actually been quite a big increase in um, uh, part-time work among lower wage and lower skill men. A very new thing, um, more than 20 years ago, hardly any men worked anything other than full-time. And now it's actually at the bottom end, uh, quite a lot are working part-time. And that might be, we don't know, that might be related to the design of these tax credits. Okay, so moving on then to those people who are at the top end uh, of the earnings scale. So very briefly, just to... I guess, touch on the tax avoidance question. So we hear an awful lot about tax avoidance. In fact, um, some politicians seem to imply that if we could just prevent tax avoidance, we could you know, pay for everything we could possibly ever want to in public services, which leaves you feeling like the gap, the tax gap that uh, is created by people, for example, offshoring their money or you know, hiding it in, in kind of complicated tax schemes, uh, must amount to billions and billions of lost tax revenue. Do we have any sense of, of whether that's true or what the size of the, the gap is? Terribly important to be clear who we're talking about and what, what the world looks like um, at the moment. So if you're looking at incomes and you're looking at, the, for example, the top 1% of um, income earners, they currently pay a vast fraction of taxes. So 1% of people pay more than a quarter of income tax. Uh, and that top 1% are earn, have got incomes above about 170,000, So you don't have to be Bill Gates to be in the top 1%. You need a pretty high level of um, earnings. And actually, the top 0.1% pay, also pay a very high fraction because they've got such huge levels um, of income. So it's not that we're getting nothing from these guys. I think that's a really important point to make in the first place. We are actually getting a lot of a lot of money. Um, and that's uh, and as I've said, that's uh, that's particularly through income tax. Now, if you've got very large levels of income and in particular actually very high levels of wealth, there are all sorts of ways of avoiding all sorts of different taxes. Now, obvious uh, tax on wealth, um, inheritance tax. Now, if you've got you know, the Duke of Westminster with 10 billion quid to um, uh, to give to your next generation. In principle, the inheritance tax rate is 40%. There isn't 4 billion quid of inheritance tax coming from the Duke of Westminster. I don't know how much it is, but it's a tiny fraction of that. So there's entirely legal uh, tax avoidance of that kind by the very, very uh, wealthy. Um, and uh, part of the uh, that, that very top end of the wealth scale, part of that is around uh, also planning for capital gains tax, but also about the way that money may be kept offshore. Almost impossible to make any sensible estimate of, as to how much is being lost, because apart from anything else, who knows what the alternative use for that money would be and how many, how many things you need to 
you know, how many things you need to close down to get the money. And the problem with the tax system is it's a bit like squeezing a balloon. You can squeeze it in one place and it will come out very often in another, particularly if you're wealthy enough um, to have, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds. If you're that rich, I think the sad truth is it's actually quite hard to force you to pay a lot more. In terms of um, earned income, though, so if we set aside the sort of accumulated wealth, the assets for a moment and, and come back to that, um, we do have this phenomenon which you know is particularly acute in America, but increasingly so here as well, which is uh, you know very um, well-paid people. I'm thinking the kind of bank CEOs or kind of you know sort of uh, very large corporate CEOs of very large corporates and indeed other members of their executive teams, um, now take an increasing chunk of their earnings in capital. And in our tax, tax system, uh, we have this weird situation, in my mind, an incredibly unfair situation, where you could end up with a bank CEO paying a rate of tax which is lower than, for example, their branch manager. How, how does that come to be? The problem, and it really is a problem, you're right to identify it, is that um, we have a different rate of tax on so-called capital gains to the tax we have on income. So if you're a very high earner, your income tax rate is 45%. But if what you're receiving is 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 or is perceived to be a capital gain, then the tax rate on that is less than half uh, what it is on income. And indeed, if you're uh, eligible for something called entrepreneur's relief, which sounds a very good thing, but actually it doesn't go to entrepreneurs on the whole, um, you've only got a tax rate of 10% on any capital gain. So the incentive uh, to take uh, returns as capital gain rather than income is huge because if, you're on a, if you've got lots of money, then the benefit is very, uh, very big indeed. And again, it's related to some extent to what we were talking about earlier. Um, if you make all that money within a company as opposed to as an employee, you get it as capital gains. You pay very, very little, uh, very, very little tax on it. It, it is almost completely indefensible uh, as a way of uh, uh, taxing um, capital gains uh, at the moment. It creates huge benefits for a small number of very wealthy people. Hello, I'm Peter Franklin, co-presenter of Unheard Shorts, a bite-sized podcast about big ideas. Too busy for in-depth journalism? Then listen to us unpack the articles that really matter without wasting your time. Unheard Shorts, going deeper, faster. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. On to then how we treat wealth more generally. So the capital gains we've just been discussing is actually really just a sort of way of taking earnings but not paying enough tax. But actually, we also have capital gains in the context of... Um, for example, you buy a property, it significantly increases in value and you sell it. And that is a gain from um, the capital that, that you owned. And this plays into the very real problem and growing problem we have, not, not just in Britain, in other countries as well, but of wealth inequality. So in Britain, I think it's the wealthiest 10% of people own 45% of the wealth and the uh, bottom 50% uh, of people own just 10%. So we have this huge problem and that's actually increased um, since the financial crash, 
amazingly. Um, and just 4% of us think that in a decade's time, wealth is going to be more fairly distributed. So this is clearly an area where people are very sceptical that any progress is going to be made and an area where um, it will be impacting on our view of whether the current economic model is the right one. And when we think about it in terms of tax uh, policy, it comes back to, Paul, the point that you were making, which is that we treat earnings, so earned income, far less generously than we treat capital or wealth. Um, and so in Britain, our tax system is effectively built on the tax revenue that we get from earnings. So I think it's about half of the tax base comes from uh, combined national insurance and income tax, whereas less than 10% comes from the wealth, taxing the wealth in property or capital. So a bit like the example of the bank CEO versus the the you know, bank teller or the bank m branch manager. Um, we have a situation where you could be a millionaire property speculator and again pay a lower rate of tax, even though that's your main job, if you like, pay a lower rate of tax than the person on average earnings working, you know, a 40 hour week. H how does that again happen? Well, there's a lot in that. Um, the, uh, I mean, what we've seen over the last decade, for example, have been actually really quite big uh, tax increases on those with the very highest incomes. I mean, really quite big tax increases, actually, but no tax increases on those with the highest wealth and indeed some cuts for in, in some respects. Uh, what we've seen over a longer period is that the is that wealth that, that we have in the country as a fraction of national income has grown very fast because I mean, actually the returns to wealth have, have, uh, have been very big. So, so wealth is more important in the national economy than it used to be. And yet we get no more tax from it as a fraction of national income than we did in the past. So we're not, we haven't taxed at all that big increase in the amount of wealth that the population um, as a whole has. And that's basically because we don't have much in the way of wealth taxes. So the, what, what are the wealth taxes that we have? Well, we have council tax. Well, that's still based on the value of property you know, 25 years ago and is in any case regressive in the sense that the more expensive your house, the less you pay as a fraction of its value. We have inheritance tax, which is very easy to avoid if you're extremely rich, but much harder to avoid if you're only a sort of middling, middlingly um, rich. We have capital gains tax, which we've talked about, which is essentially uh, often used as a way of avoiding um, income tax. Um, and for individuals, we don't have very much else in, in terms of uh, in terms of taxing wealth. So, so uh, as you say, we're very dependent on taxing people's income uh, and their consumption. And for all sorts of reasons, we're very bad at taxing their wealth. And now part of that is because sometimes it's difficult to do. Part of it is because it's hard to get from here to there. If I've accumulated wealth in a pension, say, or a house, and I've effectively been promised it won't be taxed at the end, that looks a little bit retrospective. Now, I think there's a, a whole big issue, discussion to be had about what is and isn't fair and retrospective in that world. But it makes it politically um, difficult to achieve. And I think that's one of the reasons, for example, why... All of the tax rises we've had over the last 10 years have been on people of working age and almost none of them uh, on people over pension age. And so once you've got a gain from the tax system, you tend to keep it forever. And that does mean that any increase tends to hit the young. And actually, if you look at um, what's happened to wealth inequality, really the story is not 
over the last few years so much that the rich have got richer and the poor have got poorer. It's more that the old have got richer and the young have got poorer. And that does very much bring us back to the question of property. So um, this is where I think property and capital gains comes together as an, an issue. If I was lucky enough to have brought a property, let's say, two decades ago, maybe even three decades ago, I probably got it at a pretty good price. I mean, I'm sure it felt expensive at the time, but it was affordable to me. Um, property prices have now skyrocketed. And this is one of the biggest contributors to people's scepticism that capitalism works because, you know, you need to own capital really to be invested in a capitalist model. And yet, People are struggling to be able to own what is, you know, seen as a fairly ba basic asset in Britain, at least, which is a home, a property. Um, so I've I managed to get on the property ladder three decades ago. The value of my property has, you know, let's say quadrupled. I've no idea what the actual rate of increase is, but probably in London, that's not far off, maybe even more than that. Um, and then it's my primary residence. I decide I'm going to downsize, let's say, because I've got older, although... Not enough people are doing that. But let's say I'm responsible. I'm going to downsize my property. I sell that. And am I right in thinking I don't pay anything on the, ga the gain I made on that property because it's my primary residence? There's no capital gains tax at all on, uh, on on primary residences. So you could have your property could have gone up from £10,000 to £10 million and you wouldn't pay a penny of tax on the gain that you made. Now, the person buying it through the stamp duty system would actually pay an awful lot of tax through stamp duty. Uh, and, Which is money that I've already paid tax on if I'm the buyer. Yes. I mean, I mean, the, the, I mean the issue here is who who effectively is made worse off by that. I mean, it's a terrible tax stamp duty, actually, because um, you, know, you as the seller are probably being able to sell it for less than you otherwise would have done. But the buyer uh, probably finds it harder to buy, even though the value of the property has gone down because they have to find that money up front and it comes out of what might otherwise have been there deposit and we know that nowadays you need a pretty big deposit it's also one of the reasons why people are buying and selling houses an awful lot less than they were 20 or 30 years ago and one of the things that's going on in the housing market is there's just not much in the way of transactions it's become a very very sticky market and that's associated with stamp duty now the difficult there's two, two issues with the idea that you should in an ideal world you would have capital gains tax on um, uh, on property on 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 primary residences. There are two problems uh, though. One is you you would absolutely have to have complete political agreement on it across the spectrum, because if you didn't, if you had a government that brought it in, pretty much everyone who, who could could stay in their house would stay in their house. They'd wait for the next lot to get in and repeal it. Or um, what happens at the moment with other assets, they just stay in the house until they die. So you lock, you lock people into that houses if you tax capital gains when they sell. So I think that's really difficult. The other issue is actually the capital gains have already happened. So unless you do this completely retrospectively, unless you say um, you know, to you if you bought your house 30 years ago, well, you thought you weren't going to pay any tax when you moved, but actually we're going to suddenly uh, hit you for 40% of the huge increase in your house value. Well, uh, again, that, that actually does seem a little difficult because people aren't expecting that going forward i could be wrong but i don't see i don't see these these the scale of gains happening again we've missed the we've missed the moment actually if we wanted to get that if we wanted to get that money in so thinking then about property uh from a different tax perspective um you touched on council tax and the fact that it's a pretty terrible tax in the current form in that it doesn't it's not it's not 
nearly progressive enough. It isn't really doing what it's supposed to be doing. One of the taxes that um, certainly economists would probably favour, um, I think Milton Friedman said it was the least worst tax, is a land value tax. And this is the idea that actually, rather than taxing a property or a building, you tax the value of the land that that uh, building uh, is sitting on, or just the land if there's nothing on it. Um, how might a land value tax work? And do you think that would be a better model um, and a fairer model than the current council tax system? Well, again, several issues wrapped up in that. I mean, I think, I mean, the key, there were two, two big, the two biggest problems of the council tax system are first, that it's based on property values as of a long time ago. And secondly, that it's regressive. Now, you could fix those two relatively easily within the current structure um, and sort of essentially charge people a fraction of the current value of their house. And that would be a huge improvement. Now, what is the additional benefit of a land value tax on that uh, against that. Well, it is that if you tax people on the current value of their house and you revalue it reasonably regularly and they build a big smart extension or they spend a lot of money on their house, you're then taxing them again uh, for, 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 for putting the investment into their house. Now, that's probably not a, that, that's an issue. But it's not a huge issue in the housing market. Um, for business rates, on the other hand, it is a huge issue. So we have this uh, new, uh, situation where um, business rates, rather like council tax, are charged on the value of the property. Uh, that means that if you make your factory or your office block much better, then you uh, pay a lot more business rates. If you leave it to you know, fall apart or you don't develop the land, then you pay little um, or nothing, and that's very uh, that that is that is damaging. So, I would start a land value tax on actually non-domestic property. I think you can get most of the benefits um, uh, for a decent council tax by reforming what we've got and basing it on property value. Uh, and uh, the, the other advantage of business property, as it were, is there's less of it, and so actually valuing each bit of land would be less difficult. So, I'd start there. And you know, maybe once we got council tax itself working better, think about in a long time whether we want to go to the land value. But the land value tax, I would definitely start with the non-domestic sector. The problem, though, with that is that it then doesn't tackle the problem of land banking or land speculation. Oh, but so it does because the because the land banking or land speculation is stuff held by the non-domestic sector. So this will, this is the um, you know the uh, it, that's not actually owned by a household at that point. It's owned by the uh, by so the a, a company, developer. a property developer that owns that yeah. would still be taxed, even though they wouldn't necessarily develop it for business exactly. or commercial exactly. purposes. Exactly. Okay. Um, brilliant. All right. So lots of problems we've identified in the current system, both that um, let's say disincentivize perhaps good behaviour by businesses, maybe even incentivize less desirable behaviour, but also that is just decimating the tax base, which has a knock-on impact on those people who are probably most vulnerable and poorest in society. So you can see how the tax system, the design of the tax system itself is potentially contributing to the loss of faith in capitalism. Now, Paul, you've mentioned a couple of times the sort of political uh, appetite for reform, let's say, uh, and particularly, I suppose, as one of the examples you mentioned was the sort of older generations and, and whether they would uh, 
be particularly pleased if we suddenly upped the taxes on their wealth and whether they would act with their feet in terms of voting. Added to that, obviously, we have a government that doesn't seem to be able to focus on anything other than messing up Brexit. I won't ask you to comment on that. Um, But let's just say there, there probably isn't going to be a huge radical overhaul of the tax system anytime soon. However, I do want to put you on the pot, the, the spot uh, slightly and say, if the government could only do two things in, let's say, the next five years, um, that would improve the tax system, would make it fa- fairer, would um, rebuild people's trust in the economic model that we have at the moment. What would those two things be? Well, I think I'd focus, as, as, as we have through this discussion, on more tax on accumulated capital, essentially. And you can do that in in lots of ways, reforming the council tax system in the way that we've discussed so that owners of much more expensive properties would pay more and actually owners of or uh, residents in less expensive property would pay less. Um, uh, sorting out capital gains tax, so it's not so, I mean, at the very least, get rid of entrepreneurs' relief and the, and, 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 uh, and, and the um, forgiveness at death that we currently have. Um, sort out some aspects of inheritance tax, which is absurdly um, easy to avoid um, uh, at the moment. So I think, I think there's a series of things, and, and, and actually related to that, because it's a form of capital, sort out this disjuncture between the self-employed um, and employees. All of that really is about shifting the burden away from workers towards those who have, uh, for whatever reason, uh, uh, accumulated substantial uh, amounts of capital. And I think uh, for a Conservative government, as we have now, that should seem pretty attractive, given that actually what it's about is saying we want to reward hard work, endeavour those people who are contributing the most, building things, putting in the effort to create a stronger Britain, ultimately. Um, That seems like a a pretty good way of reforming the tax system and having a very positive narrative with it. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, I promise that it wouldn't be a dull tax chat and that uh, our listeners would realise at the end just why uh, tax is a riveting uh, discussion to have. I think think you've delivered on that. Thank you so much for listening. If you have enjoyed the discussion and want to know more, um, we actually published a whole series of uh, articles on wealth taxes in particular, which is obviously the area that Paul picked out there as particularly important to focus on. So just visit unheard.com and you can read those. And we also have an audio documentary, uh, which we called Can a Wealth Tax Save Capitalism, which also features Paul. So you can you can get another <laughs> dose uh, of Paul's insight uh, if you go and listen to that. Um, please do subscribe if you haven't already on whatever the platform is that you listen to your podcasts. I've been Charlie Pickles and you've been listening to the Unheard Weekly Podcast.